0: Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of February 2022 and this is episode 244. On today's program I talk to historian and author Alex Clifford on his recent book on Hindenburg and Ludendorff and how their Great War experience assisted the rise of Hitler and the Nazis. Alex spoke to me from his home in the West Country. Alex, welcome to the podcast, could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Ludendorff and Hindenburg and their Great War legacy?
1: Well, thank you for having me, um, Tom, and it's it's an absolute pleasure to be speaking to you today. Um, as far as I go, I'm a history teacher and kind of independent researcher, writer. Um, I've looked at, in the past, things like the Spanish Civil War, I've got an interest in the interwar period, and in Germany in the interwar period, you know, you can't really get two more centre-stage significant figures than Hindenburg and Ludendorff, and of course, The really interesting thing about them is that their whole um, careers, prestige, kudos is built off the Great War. And I think the attraction for me in terms of those figures was they in themselves are a really interesting insight into how the First World War has a huge impact on Germany. Not just in the, the traditional kind of narratives around, like, say, the Treaty of Versailles, but how... It completely shapes Germany's culture and politics, you know, until we get to the Second World War, um, to a large extent. And how, you know, these are figures who make their name in the First World War and and then just don't go away because of the way that Germany remembers and looks back to the First World War during the interwar period. So,
0: why did you want to write a book on these two characters and and Mr.
1: Hitler? Well, I think that. Um, To some extent, they are misrepresented, at the very least in kind of popular history. You know, I don't think, I'm not going to accuse scholars of of not really understanding Hindenburg and Lundorf, far from it. But um, I think that the way in which they've been perceived, written about, even kind of shown in documentaries or docudramas, is kind of like, you know, good Germans. At the very most, at the very least in Hindenburg's case, as a kind of, you know, honorable men who served their country as best they could. Um, And the historical reality is, is, well, as I'm sure we're going to get into today, really quite different. And the other reason I really wanted to write about them is that, of course, always in history, it's inevitable, but it's something that we always have to contend with is that, you know, we're looking at it backwards. We know the endings, but... Everyone else is, you know, is, our subjects are experiencing history forwards. And I think when you look at the aftermath of the First World War in Germany, because we're looking at history backwards, everyone's always looking for, for Hitler, for the Nazis, for the rise of the Nazis, or what, how does this help lead to Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of putting Hitler and the Nazis center stage where they probably shouldn't have been. Because if you are, you know, put yourself in the situation of Germany, in 1918, 1919, 1920, actually, these two figures, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, are far more important, far more centre stage, far more the figures that people would have heard of, would would care about, who had an influence. Um, so I wanted to kind of drag them out of the of the. Um, of the shadows and and put them right in the spotlight.
0: So what's the central narrative of your book? What's your central argument that that you put forward?
1: I think my argument really is that um, these men who obviously made their names in the First World War um, use that experience and use most of all the the prestige um, that they've gained in the First World War for their own ends. Um, There's a certain selfishness and vanity about some of their actions um at the end of the first world war and then in in its immediate aftermath and my kind of argument is we can kind of draw a direct thread between them ascending to the very highest position during the first world war and then them being able to be hugely influential figures in interwar germany and because of that because they're hugely influential in interwar germany that means they obviously have a role to play, and a role that has been somewhat neglected in explaining how Germany goes from the end of the First World War to the Third Reich.
0: So let us start with a bit of background on our two central figures: who were Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff? What was their background, the military careers during the Great War, and how did they become sort of de facto dictators of Germany from 1916?
1: Well, Hindenburg was. You know, he was older than Edward fair, both were, but Hindenburg was much older than the nation of Germany itself. Um, he was born in 1847. He was um, known, actually, his, his surname was uh, von Beneckendorf und von, Lut- von Hindenburg. And actually, up till 1914, he was he was known as uh, von Beneckendorf. That was that was his given kind of surname. And he was as aristocratic as his name suggests. He was, you know, the traditional um, Prussian militaristic uh, aristocratic mould. He had served as a junior officer in the Austro-Prussian War, in the Franco-Prussian War. He had been in the Hall of Mirrors when Germany was created in 1871, and then in um a few years before the first war, actually he had retired um because the his military career was in his 60s it had come to an end he had been you know it had been a successful if not particularly remarkable military career and so he was kind of out of the picture and and funnily enough as well eric ludendorff was kind of in a in a bit of a dead end by the time the first war began because he was a generation younger Um, born in 1865. He wasn't an aristocrat, although he certainly was uh, from a very kind of Prussian background and uh, had been a cadet school since the age of 12, so thoroughly kind of militarized life. He was one of these um, figures who the Prussian and later German military really marked out for staff work, working on the the general staff because of his um, work ethic and his undoubted talents. But he had um, been cast into a kind of semi-exile in charge of an infantry regiment in, I think, Dusseldorf, because he was thrown off the general staff in the years preceding the First World War for basically political meddling. Um, Now, the the Great War rescues these two men, and it's hugely significant in, you know, shaping, um, obviously, their careers, but then, as I've kind of argued, the Germany that is to come, because they are rescued from total historical obscurity by the events of 1914. Um, Ludendorff manages to become almost you know the first uh, war hero of the first world war for Germany at least when he has a kind of semi-mythologized heroic role in capturing Liège in the very start of the Schlieffen plan kind of offensive through Belgium in which he supposedly um, captures the fortress the citadel by banging on the door with his sword hilt and demanding that that they surrender um, and Hindenburg is called out of retirement um, to take over the Eighth Army in the East, which is unexpectedly coming under very severe pressure in August 1914, as the Russians kind of penetrate into East Prussia. Lundorf sent over as his chief of staff. And as I'm sure many of um, your listeners know, they win remarkably quickly a huge victory um, the Battle of Tannenberg on the Eastern front um, against the Russians they crushed two armies they um, immediately become you know overnight sensations for that and they, they they follow it up they because the Eastern Front is much more a war of movement than the West they're able to deliver a series of victories in the east uh, you know in spite of the incompetence of their austro-hungarian allies and um, and Hindenburg in particular, he re- rebrands himself as Hindenburg because it's got um, connotations with the Teutonic Knights um, of the kind of, you know, 14th and 15th centuries, as does the name they give the battle, Tannenberg. Um, and he becomes a, a sensation. He becomes a war hero, a genuine kind of cult personality springs up. Um, the hero worship is kind of almost unimaginable today. Um, and I think In the First and Second World Wars, you know, generals could just, in in extremely short order, spring out of nowhere to suddenly be national icons. And that leads them in 1916 to get the Supreme Command. And they do that by, once again, kind of political meddling. They um, unseat the chief of the general staff, Erich von Falkenhayn, and hindenburg becomes the new chief of the German general staff. And Ludendorff has a post created for him, which is always nice, um, as first quartermaster general, which he can kind of interpret as he likes. Um, But very quickly, they consolidate an awful lot of power and become, as they're often labeled, de facto military dictators, a silent dictatorship but they have huge power and influence from 1916 onward.
0: So how are they able
1: to circumvent the Kaiser?
0: And then what was their role in directing Germany's war effort to 1916 until the Armistice, and how effective were they in these roles?
1: It's a really good question about the Kaiser, because, of course, you know, they are serving military men. The Kaiser is the head of state and the head of the army. Um, They should be answerable to him. And technically, they still were. Um, The issue, though, is that... Hindenburg and Ludendorff become too valuable to lose. Uh, the, the hero status, the cult of personality, the fact that once they come to the Supreme Command, they are built up even more. Um, you know, things like the war loan is advertised as like a birthday present for Hindenburg. You know, donate now. Uh, there's a Hindenburg museum opened. The fortifications they start building in the Western Front, uh, although in German they're called the Siegfried Line. You know, in English we know them as the Hindenburg Line. The economic mobilization program they bring forward is called the Hindenburg Program. So just the name Hindenburg becomes synonymous with the German war effort. And because of that, the immense power that Hindenburg and Ludendorff have over the Kaiser is they can just threaten to resign. And they do this time and again. If they don't get their way, they just say, well, we'll resign. And the Kaiser can't do anything about that because he can't afford to lose these two figures um as for how they actually wield their power and how effective they are in kind of directing germany's war effort um it's a bit of a mixed bag but ultimately of course they lead germany to defeat um and i think really a lot of the big calls they make end up being the wrong calls um I'll give you a few examples. They really push very hard in um, the spring of 1917 for unrestricted submarine warfare, um, which they, they get their way. They basically force the Chancellor out over that issue. And, of course, it leads to America's uh, involvement, which many people see as, as a crucial factor in, in, in Allied victory. They, Although they end up winning in the Eastern Front, they decide to send Lenin to Russia to destabilize it. And as much as it does serve its purpose and the Bolsheviks come to power and, and, and agree a truce um, with the with the uh, sorry, the central powers, um, it kind of unleashes forces. The Russian Revolution really does unleash forces that come back to bite Germany uh, in a very short time. They also impose against the will of the Foreign Office um, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk on the Russians, which is an extremely punitive treaty. It makes Versailles look positively generous and it ties down half a million German troops in Eastern Europe, trying to manage a vast kind of new imperial empire where they really could have done with those troops in the West in 1918. And talking of 1918, of course they launch the gigantic spring offensives. Um, they dub them as the peace offensive or the Kaiser's battle. They really sell them as all or nothing. And This is a pretty foolish decision, really, because there's various flaws, which I suppose we don't need to get into today about the spring offensives, Um, not least selling them as as all or nothing, because, of course, when they come to nothing, that means the morale of the army um, starts to disintegrate. So in many ways, the really big decisions that they make, you could argue, help pave the way to... German defeat.
0: do you think they're just de- dealt a bad hand or do they play it badly because you know you could argue germany's going to lose anyway because of its geostrategic position its resources and the fact is that it's brought the Amer- america in or do they accelerate its sort of rapid decline as a military power
1: i obviously 100 percent sympathize with that view that they're dealt a bad hand and that germany you know, this argument's been gone over so many times, hasn't it? But, but maybe in 1914, they're basically already in a position where they can't win. However, I think they're dealt a bad hand, but they also play it badly at times. Um They have as I've said, unrivaled influence and power over politics, over the Kaiser, over the military, over the economy. They, as as one member of the general staff said, who were our politicians in the Great War? Well, they were Hindenburg and Ludendorff. They got to make all the big calls. And I think probably, you know, if I was to pick out one thing that is really, really a poor decision is got to be... The spring offensives in 1918, I think it's possibly conceivable that maybe if you look at adopting a more defensive um, approach, as they later switched to about midway through 1918, they said, okay, well, we can still war, win a defensive war and grind out peace terms eventually, which by then it was too late to do so. And the fact that Brest-Litovsk is, is an absolute folly um, that really just deprives them of of, of the kind of troops that they need of some of the international goodwill they could do with by the time they get to late 1918 as well. Um, And it just, I think, like I say, I think it's a bad, a very bad hand they get dealt, but I think they don't really play it very well.
0: So how do they explain the defeat once the armistice is signed and Germany has lost the First World War?
1: I think for me, this is where they really begin to show that Self-serving um, side of their characters, which is, is, you know, doesn't show up very well with, with hindsight, um, because even before the armistice in November 1918, Hindenburg and Ludendorff are working out ways that they can avoid responsibility for their own actions. They can make sure that the blame is shifted away from them, away from the army, and that others will be have to be, will have to be found to take the blame. And this process starts very early. There's a letter um, that Hindenburg writes to his his wife in March 1918 during the spring offensives, which says, you know, well, it's going all right for now. I hope we can kind of sign a good peace at some point soon. But if it all ends badly, it isn't my fault anyway, which is a remarkable thing for the chief of the general staff to be writing. Um, and then when we get to the kind of crisis point in September 1918, where they decide, the war is lost, we're going to have to ask for an armistice. Um, Ludendorff supposedly um, says to his staff officers, now is the time that we can uh, shift the blame onto those who are truly responsible uh, and make them kind of pay for what they've done. And what he means is they're going to ensure that the peace negotiations are initiated and carried out by democratic politicians rather than the military or you know even the old regime and this is a kind of deliberate cynical attempt to shift the blame even though it was the military that asked for and then pushed for hard an armistice Um, admittedly they changed their mind in in october towards the end of october 1918 ludendorff suddenly has a a complete change of mind and demands that they fight on Um, it's far too late by then, and he gets the sack for it. But what they then do, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, um, in many ways, some of their most significant contributions, and I would say negative contributions to 20th century history, is that from the moment of defeat, they begin to create, to curate, um, and to promote the stab in the back myth, um, which, again, I'm sure is, is familiar to many of your listeners. But just to very briefly go over it, there's the idea that Germany, or at least the German army, did not lose the First World War, um, but rather that it was betrayed. That, insert your choice of kind of weak politicians, pacifists, revolutionaries, communists, or Jews, were responsible, in fact, for undermining the German war effort, for destroying morale on the home front, which, of course, then leads to the revolution that takes place in Germany in November 1918, um, and therefore that no blame for defeat in 1918, and then therefore for the subsequent Treaty of Versailles as well, that no blame for those things can be attached to the army, and therefore by extension to Hindenburg and to Ludendorff. And Ludendorff, he, as I mentioned, was sacked. He ran away in quite a fragile mental state to Sweden. And once he got there, he immediately set about writing his memoirs. He was in a very kind of delicate frame of mind. He, he was, I, I would say, at the very least, suffering from a nervous breakdown. He was openly comparing himself to Siegfried, the hero of German mythology, who is stabbed in the back. Um, and he writes his memoirs and he's got them ready. He's got them finished. Two, all 270,000 words of them across two volumes by February 1919. So he kind of wins the race of the memoirs in getting out his version of events and explaining, of course, you know, the, the crux of the book, explaining, of course, what went wrong. And obviously he's blaming at this point, his main kind of targets are the politicians, whether they be the kind of weak men of the Kaiserreich or whether they be, of course, the the kind of democratic politicians that succeed them. And also, um, Revolutionaries who are intimately tied in in Ludendorff's mind to um, to Jews, who he kind of targets indirectly. Well, kind of dog whistle language. He says that uh, the Jew that, that's, that Germany was undermined by those people who, throughout their history, have been destructive rather than constructive, which I think is pretty evidently a, an anti-Semitic slur. Um, And so he really wins the race of getting out his version of events. And although, like I say, it is a massive tome and and people do criticise it at the time in 1919, nevertheless, I think it's an influential piece of work. More significant, though, is what happens in November 1919, um, a year after the armistice, because the German parliament, the Reichstag, decides to hold a, a public inquiry into the defeat Explaining of you know what happened in the First World War, who was responsible for its outbreak, who was responsible for the poor decisions made, and, and who was responsible for the defeat ultimately. And they they want to call Ludendorff as a as a witness, obviously, to question him under oath, but he refuses to come unless accompanied by Hindenburg. And the inquiry hadn't really wanted to call Hindenburg because despite defeat in the Great War, his reputation had remained intact. He was still seen and regarded as a hero, as the embodiment of kind of German duty and honour. Um, I think it's by no means an exaggeration to say he was the most popular man in the country at the time. He was kind of beyond reproach, beyond rebuke by anyone save probably, you know, the communists. No one would dare criticise Hindenburg. Indeed, the, the kind of centre-left social democrats who'd taken over after the Kaiser's abdication, bought into the Hindenburg myth. Um, They kind of embraced him and the military and the famous Ebert-Grohner Pact and and wanted the military to to remain on side in order to crush more extreme revolutionaries. So Hindenburg had had remained in post. I don't think many people realise this, but he'd remained chief of the general staff in 1919 as well. And when the terms of the Treaty of Versailles were presented, um, the government had basically been in favour of rejecting them and restarting hostilities. And they had directly made the offer to Hindenburg that if you think there is any chance of a positive outcome of any kind, at least more positive than than the very harsh Versailles terms we've been presented with, then we will back you and we will fight on. And it had been the general staff and ultimately Hindenburg's decision that no, there's no alternative but to sign. However, the day after Versailles was signed... Hindenburg resigns as chief of the general staff and you know quits the army, ostensibly as a protest against the Treaty of Versailles. So he very successfully distanced himself both from the defeat and from its consequences. And November 1919, this inquiry I mentioned would be the kind of um, would mark the high point of this because he's called alongside Ludendorff, to give evidence to the inquiry. And it is huge fanfare on his arrival, gigantic crowds. It's a huge event. You know, there's massive press coverage. And what happens is when the the panel begin to ask questions to him, he refuses to answer. You know, they, they start with a question, actually, about unrestricted submarine warfare. When and why was that decision taken? And he just kind of stares at them contemptuously and doesn't answer and instead takes from his pocket uh, a prepared statement, which he has written with Ludendorff the night before. And obviously that statement covers many things and talks about Germany's innocence in 1914, talks about various, um, obviously, military decisions. But once again, the crux of it is about the defeat. And Hindenburg very famously uses the phrase stabbed in the back. He says there should be no blame Attached to the good core of the German army and its officers, and that in reality we were betrayed by you know politicians, by revolutionaries. And he uses a piece of fake news, a quote, a supposed quote from an English general that you know the German army was was stabbed in the back, that the British were surprised by their victory. It, it had been debunked by that point. It wasn't a, a, a true quote. It wasn't a fair reflection of that general's views. Um, but nevertheless. The importance of this testimony is that under oath, on the most public kind of stage imaginable, Germany's greatest hero, and as I say, arguably the most popular man in the country, is telling the German people that they were betrayed, that a conspiracy theory they may have heard is in fact truth, and that everything that's come because of the defeat, Versailles, massive um, material suffering, great political instability, is therefore the fault of like internal enemies of literal traitors who've undermined the country. And I don't think it can be exaggerated how important that is. You know, Hindenburg becomes the cheerleader in chief for a dangerous conspiracy theory. Uh, He backs it up in his, his memoirs the following year, which he doesn't write, he gets a team of ghostwriters to write, but he instructs them, obviously, to absolve him of any blame, but also to make his memoirs you know, accessible to make them, he uses the phrase kind of dewy-eyed and kind of emotional, uh, unlike Ludendorff's, you know, massive tome that is characteristically very detailed and complex. So he writes basically a work of popular uh, literature, or has written for him a work of popular literature that sells very well, that puts onto millions of Germans' bookshelves an actual conspiracy theory, which is extremely toxic for the you know, climate of the new democracy in Germany, and indeed undermines that new democracy, labels it as illegitimate because it was brought about by literal betrayal. So, you know, some people have have gone as far as to talk about the stab and the back myth as if, if you allow me to slightly project ahead from the Great War. But if you accept, as millions of Germans did, the interpretation of the Great War that Hindenburg and Ludendorff promote, that it was lost because of betrayal, internal betrayal, by Jews, by communists, by others, then it is the start of a you know, what has been labelled by other historians the start of the twisted road to Auschwitz. Because in the Second World War, um, Nazi documents in 1941 talk about we've got to stop what happened in the First World War happening again. And what they're referring to is a collapse of the home front, internal betrayal, and that leads to, obviously, decision-making that has horrific consequences.
0: So what do Ludendorff and Hindenburg get up to in the 1920s and up to the early 1930s? What were their political activities and how were these exploited by Hitler and his Nazi party?
1: Well, as I've kind of alluded to, um, Tom, they ride the wave of their wartime popularity, prestige, reputation. And Germany in the 20s and 30s, certainly the early 30s before Hitler's appointment as Chancellor, I would argue is a country that's kind of obsessed with the Great War. Certainly, it casts a very long shadow over politics, culture, and society. And because of that, it's kind of little wonder that First World War figures have such an influence and, and have such lasting resonance. Now, they've, they've escaped, for the most part, blame for the First World War because of the stab in the back myth. And they use that for their own ends. Uh, Ludendorff becomes... Really, the certainly in the first half of the decade, the, I would argue the leading figure on the German far right. He is the leading light behind the 1920 Cat Putsch, which is staged by uh, the Freikorps, Great War veterans who um, try and overthrow the government. They actually kind of temporarily succeed, but their efforts are halted by a general strike. And Ludendorff then flees Berlin because he's afraid of, of responsibility for, for this failed coup. Um, And he he resides for the rest of his life in Bavaria, which obviously is a state in Germany. It's uh, like all German states, kind of semi-autonomous. And because of that, he enjoys, uh, you know, both escaping from, he's able to escape from that responsibility, but also he comes into contact with a wide range of kind of nationalist, right-wing, even far-right figures, one of which um, in the early 20s is Adolf Hitler who's obviously leading a a new and local movement in Bavaria, the Nazi Party. Lundorf's views um, evolve and and become more extreme. He writes a book called Military Leadership and Politics in 1921 that goes over the same kind of step, the Batmuth stuff, but also talks about uh, his vision, his inverted kind of version of von Clausewitz's, um, you know, War is Politics by Other Means. He turns it on its head and basically says that the purpose of politics is to prepare for war. Um and in this um period he he basically him and Hitler establish a relationship. They it's a symbiotic relationship. Ludendorff sees Hitler as useful for his purposes of of creating some sort of militaristic dictatorship. Well Hitler has the masses on his side. He can kind of whip up the people to support me. And for the the kind of young and aspiring Hitler, Ludendorff is, is you know, is a big name. He brings uh, clout and kudos to the young Nazi party, but he also brings lots of money. He channels funding to the Nazi party in the early 20s. And of course, in 1923, there's the Munich Putsch or the Beer Hall Putsch. And that is as much as, and this is one of the things uh, about looking at history backwards rather than um, You know, often Ludendorff is seen as a peripheral figure in that because the focus is all on Hitler and Hitler's eventual path. But at the time, it was referred to as the the Ludendorff-Hitler putsch. This was primarily about Ludendorff, because if it had succeeded, Ludendorff would have been the one installed as the kind of dictator, with Hitler as his kind of political right hand. Um, And the putsch would never have been attempted had Ludendorff not been building with Hitler for many months a kind of united far-right movement. Not least because there's no way that that a Bavarian Lance Corporal like Hitler, well, Austrian Lance Corporal, but his Bavarian movement, would have thought that they could seize national power when they were still relatively unknown. The fact they had Ludendorff at the head of their column is what gave them the kind of delusion that they could win because Ludendorff insisted that the army would back them. That you know, nationalists across the country would rally to his banner. Of course, you know that didn't turn out to be the case, fortunately. And uh, Ludendorff escapes any punishment for the for the putsch because he his defence he revises his testimony and he says that he w- didn't know a putsch was going on. It's absolute nonsense. He he wasn't swept up by the occasion. Um, he was well involved with the planning. However, while Hitler's in prison, Ludendorff basically um, takes over the leadership of the Nazi movement. Um, But he's largely discredited uh, by the 1925 presidential election, which in the first round he he polls, Ludendorff runs as the Nazi candidate, he polls 1.1% of the vote. Um, And Hitler successfully divorces his followers from Ludendorff and and asserts his sole dominance over the Nazi party in the mid-20s. For Hindenburg, he had wanted to run for president in 1920, but the election got cancelled. And I mentioned the 1925 presidential election that Ludendorff uh, ran in calamitously in the first round. In the second round, Hindenburg comes in as the kind of united right-wing candidate, um, bringing together all sorts of parties um, of the German right and different organisations, and he succeeds in defeating the kind of pro-Weimar candidate. And Hindenburg's presidency is, is, is interesting, I, I won't go into too much detail, um, but I think one of the really important things is that he becomes president and he is so popular because of the great war. You know, you get people writing when he's elected, you know, this is, you know, a fantastic moment we're returning to the golden age. We are, you know, embracing our past. We are, I think there's a lot of sense that by electing Hindenburg, we're kind of proving as a people that, you know, what we did in 1914 was right, that the nation can kind of stand proud again. And it's, it's kind of nostalgic, I think it's it's nostalgic for the past, but it's also um, the result of Hindenburg's very careful curation of his own myth, his own cult of personality that's been built up since 1914, that's been buttressed by the stab in the back myth. And he, becomes, he ascends to new heights, I would say, during his presidency, at least in the first few years, as a kind of father of the nation as a kind of um, figurehead for all Germans to unite behind. And, and, you know, the celebrations, for example, for his 80th birthday in 1927 are, are, you know, frankly kind of bizarre when you kind of read about them today. People uh, write that he's, he's he's a gift from God for the German people. They mark his head in the, is a distinctive kind of face is marked in the sky with fireworks. There's, a Hindenburg song written specially for his 80th birthday. And at the same time, you know, the Great War is never far from public kind of consciousness because whilst he's president, um, Hindenburg and his staff do an awful lot to curate the writings about the First World War. They have manuscripts of books about the First World War, about Tannenberg, you know, sent to the presidential palace to be looked over by the staff to be checked to be um, vetted, if you like. Equally, there's, there's films made. There's both dramas and documentaries made about Hindenburg's life, about you know the Battle of Tannenberg, about the First World War. And again, the president's staff have an active role in kind of vetting the scripts, looking over the scenes and making sure it's to the liking of the president and, and is further reinforcing the Hindenburg myth. And from that prestige and from that kind of unrivaled reputation in the early 30s, as the Depression hits, um, Hindenburg tries to, with his circle of advisors, create some sort of alternative to the Weimar system, or at least reinterpret the Weimar system, make it more presidential, build the prestige and the authority of the government, not on political parties, but on the reputation of Hindenburg, his charisma. Um, ruling by presidential decree, this sort of thing, and the the self styled Hindenburg cabinet of 1930 to 32 is packed full of his kind of personal picks. There's there's six holders of the Iron Cross in the cabinet because you know this is you know they 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 literally uh, call back to the Great War and say this is the front generation now taking charge um, and you know putting Germany back on the path to greatness because. I think it's often forgotten the moves to rearm the moves to kind of um, revise Versailles actually really assertively start before Hitler comes to power. They start in 1930, 31, 32, when they get rid of uh, allied forces of occupation, they, the military takes the decision in 31 to rearm regardless of what happens um, on the international stage. Um, And in 1932, they, they, cancel reparations they say right you know in we can't afford to pay you're going to have to let us off this so Hindenburg is part of a real kind of reassertion almost of you know we did nothing wrong you know we we are proud of what we did in the great war we're going to hark back to that
0: so when you we look at the rise of Hitler how much are they responsible for this Because it's so easy to think that it's an obvious predetermined thing that Hitler's going to rise and they're going to help him when we need to consider other factors like you know, the, the Wall Street crash, the inflation in Germany, the political instability partly caused by the political system, the problems with the communists and social democrats, and, you know, the fact that Germany is a highly brutalized society after four years of war and the civil strife. It's a really difficult one, but it's so easy just to say Hitler rises because of Hindenburg and Ludendorff and their role in the First World War. How much would you attribute their role in, in his, his rise?
1: It's kind of the central question of my book, I guess, Um, and it's a really difficult one. As you say, you know, Weimar Germany uh, is assailed by problems from all directions, and the Great Depression and the the kind of economic whirlwind it brings obviously plays a gigantic role. However, despite those kind of societal forces and and historical forces and factors that, that are obviously outside the control of any one individual... There is remarkable personal agency displayed, um, particularly in the last few months uh, of the Weimar Republic and those kind of crucial final decisions about what to do, particularly about Hitler and the Nazis. Um, But I'll kind of put that to one side for now. I think let's go to Ludendorff first because his role is much earlier in the Nazi movement. As I said, he's he's more or less broken with them by the mid-20s or been pushed out really by Hitler. Um, For Ludendorff, I think... And Hindenburg links to this as well. You've really got to think about the power that the stab in the back myth has, the fact that the Nazi Party endorses that view and accepts that view entirely, and the fact that it normalises uh, conspiracy theory and the thinking that's at the root of it about betrayal, about internal enemies. That becomes normalised by Hindenburg and Ludendorff, and that obviously has a as a gigantic effect. and And I think I've you know made it pretty evident that. The words coming from their mouths means a lot more than anybody else's. Ludendorff then obviously gives a lot of, I would call, I guess, political oxygen to the early Nazi party. There's no special reason why the Nazis, out of many, many far-right movements that emerged in the early 20s in Germany, why the Nazis particularly should rise up to you know, eventually creating their own dictatorship in a one-party state. Um, that is a very complex and twisted road that didn't always, as you say, it's definitely not inevitable. But Ludendorff gives, he, you know, singles out Hitler as his political protege and gives that early Nazi movement prestige, kudos, fame. And the Beer Hall Putsch and the subsequent trial, a lot of people think that's the, that's the moment for Hitler when he becomes a national figure. Even if he's one that many people laugh at at that stage, you know, he still gets that national uh, notoriety. And like I say, the Beer Hall Putsch is inconceivable without Ludendorff. As for Hindenburg, if we go back to that point I was making about personal agency, he really wants, as I've said, in the early 30s to push Germany in a new direction, uh, kind of build some sort of presidential, semi-authoritarian um, nationalist regime in which obviously he's at the front and he is... His real goal and desire in the early 30s is to recreate that famous spirit of 1914, you know, the the idea that the nation is united, that there are no classes, there's only Germans. Um, That's the kind of driving force. He longs for that kind of unity and stability uh, and common purpose that is so lacking in the Weimar Republic. Now, his vision of that, by the way, is, is an exclusive one rather than an inclusive one. He in order to achieve that, he basically thinks it's necessary to exclude, you know, the political left, people, even people like the Social Democrats, who, although very moderate, are seen as, as traitors because of the stab in the back myth, and are seen as, as opponents, you know, they're pacifists, they're not going to ever get on board with, with the Hindenburg vision. So in that mission, Hindenburg wants to build a, basically a united right. If he doesn't want, it, he doesn't want to work with the left. He wants to build a united right. And so, from 1930 onwards, he's actually agitating for the Nazis to be let into the government, to be given cabinet seats. He doesn't particularly like Hitler personally. Uh, famously, you know, I think there's a lot of class prejudice going on there that an upstart lance corporal shouldn't claim the leadership of a, of a great nation. Um, but he does see the Nazis as essentially, you know, sharing his nationalistic vision. And being a force that can bring a lot of the population behind a drive towards rearmament, towards making Germany a great power once again, and to, you know, kind of crushing internal dissent. And so because of that, you get onto this path where the kind of elites, the, the, the political establishment, are looking from 1930 onwards for some sort of way to tame the Nazis, to control the Nazis, to bring them into the tent, so to speak. And obviously that, that ends with disastrous consequences. A final um, point I would make about the rise of Hitler and, and Hindenburg's personal agency and in decision-making involved is that there's an incredible election, a presidential election in 1932, which is essentially a contest between Hindenburg and Hitler. Um, I won't go into great detail. You know, it's it's a key feature of the book, but, you know, it's, it's field marshal versus lance corporal. It's two men who are both billed as saviors of the nation, who both are basically relying on their, on their charisma to try and win. And Hindenburg wins that election um, by a pretty decisive margin as well. He gets um, 53% of the vote to Hitler's roughly 37 The crucial point, though, is that he's supported in, in that election by the political kind of left, centre-left, moderate-right, and what he calls his people, the nationalist right, basically abandon him. And At that moment, having won a landslide election, Hindenburg could have kind of pressed on with basically the support of the majority of the country behind him, stretching from, as I say, the kind of moderate left through to moderate right, um, on the kind of same course he was going. And perhaps, just maybe, Germany could have seen out the Great Depression and and there wasn't another election due until 1934 at that point. So maybe things would have bottomed out. But instead he chooses, because of his personality, because of his vanity, because he is so upset and genuinely kind of embarrassed by the fact he's been abandoned by his people and the fact he's he's, he's genuinely unhappy about being elected by, as he calls them, kind of socialists and Catholics, that he decides um, from the spring of 1932 onwards to he needs to prove his kind of nationalist credentials. And to do that, the central object is going to be to ditch his current government and and bring in an administration that is going to include the Nazis in some form or another. And obviously that takes Germany down a path in which um, that ends with the, the, the coalition with Hitler at its head. And I guess a final point would be that in the very last kind of few months of the Weimar Republic, when they were really boxed in, in terms of decisions, the final choice really was between either that scheme of bringing the nazis in or as they did consider and they made plans for some sort of uh, closing down the parliament amending the constitution and basically ruling by martial law for a time until the you know the depression and the emergency is seen out And, and that would require basically an armed confrontation with the communists and with the nazis um and hindenburg for understandable motives, balks from that, from that choice, he is presented with that choice on several occasions in the last few months of the Weimar Republic, and he can't bring himself to do it. And it's perfectly understandable that anything would seem preferable to civil war. But obviously, ultimately, that option really, with hindsight, as much as we can't criticise him for not having that hindsight, but that option does seem, with hindsight, the preferable one to a Hitler chancellorship.
0: And my final question is, where can people get the book and learn more about your research?
1: Well, the book is Hindenburg, Ludendorff and Hitler, Germany's Generals and the Rise of the Nazis. It's available um, from Pen & Sword, the publisher, but obviously also all good book outlets, retailers, etc. And I really go into, obviously, much more depth in the book about some of the things we talked about today, get into the nitty-gritty of some of these different elections and political decisions and things like that, and look at how the First World War and the leaders of the First World War kind of pave a path that will lead to a Hitler dictatorship.
0: Alex, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom.
0: You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195 until next time